This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. Hi, everyone. Welcome to HRT. I'm your host, Bethany Adams. I love HRT, but truth be told, I am still a coffee drinker. All right. Today's episode is a special one. Not only is this a bonus episode not included in either of our current seasons, it was actually recorded at a local SHRM chapter meeting. Back in early 2020, I had some bold ambitions to take HRT on the road. We were planning to dedicate season three to topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion to coincide with the launch of our new inclusion and diversity strategy certificate in the Villanova HRD program. I was hoping to record episodes for season three out in the wild at HR meetings across the country. I wanted to meet some of our listeners in person and speak at some chapter meetings with some of our HRD faculty who are located across the country. We had hopes to make it to Florida and Ohio and Texas and even California. Well, as we all know, 2020 had different plans for all of us and that travel did not happen. But it takes more than a global pandemic to discourage me. So season three will still be dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion topics. And this episode is a bonus that was already scheduled right here in Philadelphia with myself and Jamil Rush, who is an adjunct faculty member at Villanova, at the Greater Valley Forge Human Resource Association. Greater Valley Forge HRA is a SHRM chapter chartered in 1983 and currently with more than 400 members and 20 committees serving those members here in the Philadelphia area. Greater Valley Forge HRA has received numerous awards and recognitions over their last 38 years. Most notably, they were a Pinnacle Award recipient in 1993. That's an honor given to only eight chapters nationwide each year. They also received the Superior Merit Award from SHRM for more than 13 years in a row. In 2003, they received the SHRM Area 1 Diversity Award, and in 2017, they were honored with the SHRM Excel Award Chapter Gold designation for their commitment to excellence for their members. Greater Valley Forge is near and dear to Villanova as they have been a partner with our Villanova SHRM student chapter for many, many years. And they also support the development of HR students by continuing to offer both an undergraduate and graduate scholarship for HR students in the area. If you live or work in or around the Greater Valley Forge region outside of Philadelphia, this is definitely a chapter for you to check out. You will find support and resources and friendships that will help you in your career and support you as an HR professional. In the notes for this episode, we will be sure to link to their website, some of their upcoming events, and ways that you can connect. Okay, so let's dive into this episode. As I mentioned, it was recorded at this Greater Valley Forge HRA evening chapter meeting all the way back in May 2020. 
So adjust your mind a little bit to that time frame, right? This is early to mid pandemic. And actually this meeting was recorded in the week of George Floyd's death. The protest over the summer had not yet started when this episode was recorded. And certainly those protests elevated the national conversation as a tipping point for what I hope will be meaningful change in this country and around the world when it comes to diversity and inclusion. In this episode, our guest, Jamil Rush, uh, who, as I mentioned, is one of our amazing adjunct faculty members in the Villanova HRD graduate program. And he is also the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We will begin with Jamil introducing the concepts of DEI and talking about the nature of his work in organizations around these topics. The last half of the episode was our live Q&A during that chapter meeting. So without further ado, let's dive in with Jamil. Putting aside the work and the job that I have inside of this space, I just really believe that the role of DEI in our society and in our businesses is critical. And when I look back, not just in the work that I do day to day, but also my personal career path, I can talk to you about how equity, inclusion, and diversity has really helped me pave and be successful in my own career. So I talk about this and I approach this both from my personal experience, as well as my passion and belief in the business impact around it. So I'm excited to talk to you all a little bit about sort of where I see this work going and where the research is talking about this work going. Because you know, the only thing that is changing at the speed of technology in today's day and age is probably society in general, right? Those are the only things that we see comparable and changing. And just think about if you put yourself and you just sort of close your eyes and envision 1990, and imagine in 1990, we were having the conversations about gender identity, if we were having conversations about same-sex marriages, just think about the terminology that we use as it related to individuals with disabilities, and then think about what that would look like today. And we can see how drastically this work is shifting and how drastically our approach around this work has really been shifting. So before I get into any of the things around the future space around it, you know, I, I do think it's important that we have common language. So I do want to spend a brief moment talking about the concepts of diversity equity and inclusion and why they are important and what the differences are across those three spaces. Because we tend to use them interchangeably. You hear a lot about diversity and inclusion and you'll use it, you'll hear it used almost as if it's one word, right? You'll hear diversity and inclusion. But the reality is that they're two very separate topics and equity, which has entered the, the nomenclature in the last few years is an entirely different one on top of that. But when we talk about diversity, we're really talking about the mix of individuals that show up. So when I talk about diversity within an organization, it's about the different backgrounds, the different perspectives, the different races, ethnicities, orientations, different types of abilities. It's all the unique attributes that we have that make us different, but also similar at the same time. So diversity is really about the mix of individuals that we show up with. On the other hand, when we talk about inclusion, that's about how do we utilize and how do we tap into that mix to bring power, to bring voice, and to bring progress to our cultures. So the reality is that you can have diversity within your organization, but not have inclusion. 
just because you have a differing mix of individuals and people, that doesn't mean that you're tapping into that mix and making the most out of it. At the same way, you can have a really inclusive organization, but no diversity. It's really easy to be inclusive for a bunch of individuals who share common backgrounds and perspectives and styles around it. But it's really about that mix of diversity and inclusion that drives those greater business outcomes. So that's why you hear that commentary around diversity and inclusion voiced together. The third part of that is this conversation around equity. And equity is really centered around how do we build policies and practices inside of our organizations that help remove the barriers that exist to creating inclusion and diversity. So what are the policies and practices and procedures that we have within our organization that help to drive more diversity, that help to drive greater levels of inclusion? And I would argue that equity is the most fair thing that we can do because just providing the same the same resources to everyone does not mean that we're meeting each individual's unique need. And you know, the reason that we focus on that is really because the business case is clear. It's clear through the research that having greater levels of diversity, inclusion, and equity drives to much greater business outcome. In fact, for every 1% rise in the rate of gender diversity and ethnic diversity within the workforce, there is a correlating 3 to 9% rise in revenues for organizations. You know, Fortune 500 companies who report high levels of diversity, inclusion, and equity outperform their peers by over 50%, see over 40% greater return on sales. 70% higher levels of success in new markets for, for those organizations that have high levels of diversity and inclusion, and they're 45% more likely to, to drive greater levels of market share. And this is only a snapshot of that research, but the reality is there's no longer a conversation around whether or not diversity drives greater business outcomes. The research clearly shows that it's about how do we get to a place within our organizations to get to those better business outcomes. Unfortunately, though, the current picture and the current reality around the employee experience is not moving and it's not at the place that we would expect it to be considering how long we've gone around this work. We've made great strides, but there's still a lot left to do as it relates to this work of equity and this work of inclusion. So, you know, you can see everything from the lower rates of women reporting that they have support from senior managers all the way up to the levels of bias that exists in the applicant pool and the lack of inclusion that exists for people with quote-unquote ethnic sounding names or individuals with disability having lower levels of employment and the sentiment of people who have different orientations in the workplace. So the current picture still shows that there's a lot of work left to be done. So as we think about this work in the forward in the future looking picture around diversity, equity, inclusion, it's important to note that we haven't reached a bar yet and it's not even like the current state of the, is the nirvana of where we need to be. Before we start to talk about where we're going, it is also important to understand where we've been and how organizations in general, their paradigm and their approaches to the DEI work have shifted drastically over the last you know, 30 to 40 years as well. And if you go all the way back to, I would say between the 19, late 1940s to obviously late 60s in the civil rights movement, we really started from a place of resistance within our organizations. If you go all the way back to Jim Crow in those spaces, this idea of separate but equal and the concept that 
there is not a space and there's not a need to bring individuals together. And what's mine is mine and what is my space is my space and what's your space is your space. Thankfully, generally, most organizations have gotten out of that paradigm from resistance and they started to move to somewhere on the other three. In the late 1980s, something was signed called Workforce 2000 by the Secretary of Labor. And what Workforce 2000 did was explore the changing demographics in workforce population and said to organizations, it was a no or Northern Star to organizations to say, if you're not able to capitalize on the changing demographics of the U.S. population, you're not going to be able to be competitive from a talent standpoint. So they used that in order to set the foundation of what we know today to be diversity and inclusion work. And most organizations have sort of shifted to one of the three levels. So the first one is what we call discrimination and fairness. So that's this idea that we approach diversity work because it's not fair to discriminate against people or we don't want to violate the legal aspects of it. So those are things like obliging with affirmative action laws or making sure that you have employee relations issues set up so that you don't get sued for Title VII or Title IX violations. So those things exist from some organizations that approach it just as a space of, I don't want to get in trouble, right? That's the first paradigm. Then what we saw as organizations begin to become more mature and evolve in this space, it evolved into what we call access and legitimacy. So that was this idea that organizations believed in order to understand and better understand their customer base, they needed to have that representation within their own company and organization. So it was the idea that diversity was critical because if I don't have diversity, I don't understand my consumer. Still very legitimate idea and concept around the importance of it, but that becomes the, became the next paradigm shift of if I don't have diversity, I don't understand my consumer. What we've been seeing organizations start to shift into now as more research comes out across this and as people get a better understanding of the business impact as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion is this concept of integration and learning. And integration and learning really says that, hey, it's not just about not getting in trouble legally. It's not just about understanding my consumer, but it's also about diversity of thought, of perspectives, the unique attributes that I bring to my organization. It helps me to drive better culture, build better outcomes, to create better learning, and it helps me to be a better organization. So it sort of got into this place of to the integration of what we do culturally and diversity being critical to create a culture that can get the best outcomes and drive to the best results. So these paradigms and this shift is really interesting over time and making sure we understand them is critical to understand before we start to think about where we're going from here. Jamil, I wanna throw you a, a semi-easy question to kick us off. My question to you is, how do we as HR professionals think about supporting so many different cultures that are going to exist? And how do we individually adapt our approach to so many different voices when we talk about culture being so important for an organization, right? How do we adapt to this fluid culture you're talking about? Yeah. And Great question too, Bethany. Yeah, it's really interesting because our the way culture has been built traditionally within organizations has been very top-down, 
right? The leader, founder dictates the type of culture, and then that permeates through to what we see today. And almost what's happening through uh, the current day and age is there's a bit of a groundswell where the, the employees deeper into the organization are influencing up or opting out, right? They'll say, hey, I'm expecting my culture to be this way. And if not, I have other options. Much more prevalent a few months ago when unemployment was three and a half percent versus today where it's like, I don't know what the, the latest numbers are, 10 to 20 percent around it. But with the rise of the gig economy, people can say, I don't need to work for you as an employer. I can find different spaces that will give me sources of income and I'll choose the ones that treat me the best. So it's really about what type of listening and feedback mechanisms are in place. How are you giving voice to the populations within your workforce and not just those who are in power? How are you building and looking for leaders who listen as well, right? How are you making sure that you have leaders who are flexible, who understand that they might not have all the answers and those who don't have respect for position? This makes sense. It's not about the position. It's about the idea that's really critical for it. So how are you making sure that you set up those? And then how are you making sure that you have mechanisms to get that feedback externally as well, to Bethany's point? Because we can hear from ourselves, but miss what our consumers are saying, or we can hear from ourselves and we miss what our brand is saying. So making sure that you have those things in place and then having leaders who are willing to make adjustments in the coaching that we give our leaders says that you need to make changes based on that feedback is probably the most critical part there. Thanks, Jamil. So James's question is actually probably one that's on a lot of people's minds right now, given all that's going on in the news. And we're seeing so many news issues that are coming up that relate to diversity, that relate to equity and inclusion. How do you feel about those kinds of conversations in the workplace? And for us as HR professionals, how do we respond in a way that makes everyone in that conversation, no matter how you feel about what's happening in the news feel still included within your organization? Yeah, it's a really difficult question. And we saw this similarly when the Trayvon Martin case came through and, and Black Lives Matter. And I think it's difficult to give an answer across all organizations. I think a lot of it depends on your culture. I would say even more than that, it's about how authentic you've been about these conversations in the past and how what type of culture you've built to be inclusive to date. Because if you've never spoken about equity or inclusion issues, and then all of a sudden you come out and you talk about the, the shooting of a man by a police officer, that's going to be a really difficult conversation for you to start with as a, as a workplace. So I think one is making sure that you're authentic and creating safe spaces for your workers in the first place is going to be really important. You know, the one thing that I do know is that it's going to be harder and harder for organizations to sit on the sideline and say nothing. And it was traditionally very safe to say nothing. Now, both employees and consumers are looking at their organizations to say, how are you supporting my needs, right? And how are you supporting the things that are important to me? So whether that's organizations saying like, what are you talking about? How are you supporting influencing our culture to have same-sex marriage? Or if it's talking about uh, the recent police shooting, or if it's talking about any of those things, you're going to have to at some point make a decision about culturally how you operate and get off the fence and not be safe. So I think in some ways it's about just making the decision of you're going to make someone mad, 
why not make the people mad while being authentic to the type of culture that you're claiming to build? Thanks, Jamil. Yeah, and you know, the one thing I'd add to that is that I think organizations having an understanding of what they stand for, what their values are, who we want to include in this conversation speaks to the stances we take. And your employees now more than ever want to see that their organizations are actually going to stand up for the values that they espouse in the handbook they read on day one. I think that becomes really important for the authenticity and the, the genuine nature of that inclusion, which is really important for employees. Yeah, it's interesting. It's easy to say that you really value diversity and inclusion until you have to risk something, right? Nike has been pretty interesting in the risk that they've taken over the last couple of years, they did the Colin Kaepernick ad, for example. Then they, if you look at the imagery that they've gone through recently around inclusion, is it's really an interesting space. But part of this work and part of being authentic is that it's going to take some risk as well. And you need to be okay with that in order to build the culture that you're striving for. Thanks, Jamil. So our next question comes from Linda. Linda, jump right in. Hi, thanks so much guys. This has been such a great presentation and I appreciate you guys representing the disability community. I think sometimes when we discuss issues like this, they're oftentimes the hidden D. And I just wanted to ask, how can you encourage current employees to self-identify when you're building an inclusive culture that includes that disability community that's gonna just continue to increase as our workforce continues to grow? Yeah, great question too, Linda. And for those of you who don't who aren't familiar with self-identification and self-identification campaigns, traditionally within an organization, in order to track things, it, it becomes much more prevalent in things like individuals with disabilities, veteran status. We see some companies that have started to track it around sexual orientation. So those things are a bit more difficult and sometimes people are a lot more uncomfortable sharing with their employers companies will do what we call a self-ID campaign in order to collect that information. And it's a great measurement tool for one, how are you driving diversity? Because what's your, your core representation looking like? It's actually also a really, really good measurement tool for inclusion as well. Because if I'm comfortable disclosing this information to you as an employer, it basically means that I'm comfortable that you're not gonna use it against me, right? So you've created an environment where I feel so comfortable bringing my whole self to work, that I know that something as sensitive as me identifying with some sort of different ability, that that won't be used against me. And I think the biggest first and foremost thing that you have to do, it sounds like you guys are already down the path with Linda, is around this cultural dedication and commitment to being inclusive for people with different abilities, right? And being very vocal about that. So how are you externally celebrating things like mental health awareness or disabled awareness monk, all of those places. Who are your partners that you're going with and you're connecting with that support individuals with disabilities and speaking to that? You know, some of the pomp and circumstances can feel cheesy or inauthentic, but that external communication and speaking point starts to give be a signal to the world of saying like, hey, this is normalized here and conversations about abilities is normalized in this space and you have to normalize those conversations. I think making sure that you have people who are represented throughout your organization and giving them space to be shown and 
that they're sitting on leadership teams and they're high making decision influencers within the organization. And when you have a town hall, it's showing individuals with different abilities as well. That starts to normalize the conversation. And then on the more technical, tactical side, being consistent in the number of times and ways that you allow people to disclose that information is really important as well. So catching them on the front end when they first start with you, are you giving people the chance to disclose when they first fill out their employment paperwork and then at different intervals throughout the year coming through and talking about why self-ID is important, why you're doing it, saying it's not about counting numbers, it's about creating a culture of inclusion and seeing and measuring success. It's a really critical component to it as well. So I think all of those things start to pull together and you'll see your numbers shift up drastically as you get more and more of those things in place. Thanks, Jamil. Yeah, one thing I would add to that as well is thinking about the policies that you have in place and even the benefits that you offer and how are all different employees represented in those benefits and those policies. Employees aren't going to feel comfortable self-identifying when they don't even feel that they're represented in the benefits that are offered. There was some research done a number of years ago around just representation in benefits. So if you offer family benefits of some kind to one what families and how are all families represented in that. And so there was a study around the LGBTQ population and people feeling like they couldn't even address or, or come out and self-identify within their own organization because they didn't even feel that the benefits that were offered were supportive of their lifestyle. And so how am I going to come out and self-identify to you if you don't even take that into account when you create policies and you create benefits? So that might be, that represents presentation piece is always like a first step to that people feeling comfortable self-identifying. But there was a question about the NFL example that I want to throw to Jamil because it's a, it's a good question. And so, yes, the NFL did table the draft picks, incentivizing draft picks for teams that hire a minority head coach or general manager. And the question is actually around sort of incentivizing or bribing organizations into hiring minorities. And it, that it should be this morally correct decision and not just we're going to incentivize it and that's how we get there. And so the question is, you know, what are other options besides just incentivizing diversity, equity, and inclusion? And do you think that those kinds of incentives are, are moving us in the right direction? That's a, a really interesting question. You know, right, think about motivation. There's, there's two motivators. There's carrot, there's stick, right? <laughs> so either you want someone to follow the carrot or you make sure they don't slow down by hitting the stick. And within your organization, it's important to, to know what drives behavior change for you. And the reality is it's typically some combination of the two of making sure that you create incentives for people to display the behaviors, but there's still accountability measures that when individuals aren't displaying those that they know it's not okay. So, you know, I wouldn't feel that you're doing the work a disservice by incentivizing those right behaviors and putting accountability measures in space. Because the reality is once people do something consistently over a long period of time, that's how you draw, drive long-term culture change. So I might need to incentivize you with it now through the bonus plans or through merit increasing process or through performance reviews, because I'm starting to shift the culture. But once it, once it becomes ingrained in what you do, then you don't have to keep those incentives in place anymore. So it's really about how do you get people to start exhibiting the behaviors that are critical, 
How do you hold them accountable to exhibiting those, exhibiting those behaviors? And just think about put your change management hat on holistically. DNI, as much as anything else, is a change management effort. You know that you need incentives and accountabilities to drive longstanding change. You know, I think incentives are really critical. I think accountability tools are really critical to success until the behavior is so consistent that you don't need them anymore. Okay, so we're getting to the end of this session and there's two really great questions that are looming. And so I'm going to pose them both to Jamil and make him choose. Um, <laughs> Which is always fun to do. <laughs> or if you can get through them both, you get through them both. So one of them comes from Anne, and she's asking you to speak a little bit more about cultural compliments. Give us some examples of that and what does that look like in the DE&I space. And then the other great question is from Deb. In this virtual world that we're living in right now, and I believe we will continue to live in, maybe not all the time, but we will always have this virtual nature to our work going forward. We're seeing a lot more interviews happen in this virtual environment. And so what kind of recommendations do you have to not negatively affect kind of neurodiverse candidates who might be coming into a virtual interview or any kind of diverse candidate that might be negative, negatively affected by this space? So two yeah. very different questions. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll start with the second and I'll try to get through both of them a minute apiece. So, you know, for the neurodiverse side of things, it's important. No, a lot of these web platforms that we're using have great accessibility tools. The problem is we don't use them. So things like closed captioning, things like Zoom and Microsoft Teams, they have automatic captioning. If you just literally click a box and turn it on, you can do spaces like talk to speech mechanisms where as you're typing, it will read them back out to the candidate going through. So I, I, you know, I think the accommodations piece is just as critical as the accommodations that we would have in person. If you had some individual with a, another type of disability that might've been physical and them coming into the office would present specific challenges. So I think those challenges are, they'll remain to be there being there. It's just important about making sure our leaders don't use them as excuses because the tools are out there. And generally there are communities, if you find that you are really struggling with something that is gonna get in the way there, people have done it before. And you can go to places like Disability Inn and other organizations that will give you best practices and, and tapping into the network. So I think just looking for those best practices and researching accessibility tools, honestly, before you even need them, within your webinar platforms and making them commonplace and what you do is going to be critical. For the, the other question around cultural compliments, this is quick as I can do it, but I think it's important to challenge your managers to not look for people they like, look for people who have skill sets that they're missing and ask those questions and make sure that as you have hiring tools and interview questions, they're all centered around competencies that are missing within the team, not competencies that everyone's looking to go through. So if you can be intentional about that, it'll help that process much better. Done. Oh my gosh, Jamil is amazing. Those last couple of questions came rapid fire, right? And he was able to answer in the given time, but he didn't get to go into a ton of detail because we were running out of time that evening. He really did hit on some important topics. He got so many snaps and claps, even from a virtual audience. And so this episode might be done, as Jamil said, but our exploration of diversity, equity, and inclusion topics are just beginning. We are dedicating season three to the topics of DEI. We've already done most of the recording, and let me tell you the content and the guests that we have coming up for you in season three are so amazing. 
I personally have learned and grown in my knowledge and understanding of just how much of our work and relationships are affected by so many different DEI topics. I am excited to share this content with all of you. And I might have a little surprise coming for season three, but I won't let that cat out of the bag just yet. You will have to wait for our trailer for season three, which will drop very, very soon. So stay tuned. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Cheers to the end of 2020 and to 2021 being a better year for all of us. Remember, whatever you are drinking, coffee, tea, or something a little bit stronger, I hope it leads you to fresh brewed ideas that will help make work better for all of us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at villanovahrd.com.